All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the situation on the downtown east side, the encampment on Hastings Street, which is still there, despite that order by the fire chief to remove tents and structures there. That order was issued nearly a month ago, by the way. The tents are still there. If you were here for yesterday's show, you heard my interview with Howard Chow, the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department. He said anti-police activists in the neighborhood are making it difficult for the police to do their jobs there. We've got the other side of it today with Vince Tao, who is standing by. First, have a listen to this report now from Global News about a police-involved death that happened in the neighborhood yesterday. Have a listen. A man is dead on Vancouver's downtown east side after what police are calling an interaction with officers this morning. Angry witnesses have described police using a beanbag gun to subdue the man, even though onlookers tried to explain why the man was upset. The entire street was yelling at the police officers that he'd been bear sprayed and to help him. And they didn't do anything. They didn't didn't listen to us. They immediately advanced on him and shot him in the back. Okay, let's discuss now with Vince Tao. Vince is a community organizer at Vandu, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and he advocates for a lot of the people in that encampment. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Vince, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks, Mike. Hey, Vince, let's start with this situation with the, the death of this man in the downtown east side yesterday. This happened, like, right outside the your office down there. Is that oh, yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah, right on our step. So right across the street from uh, our location at 3 East Hastings yesterday around, I think, 7.45 a.m., a man was uh, walking up and down the streets. He was in distress. He was naked. Uh, he was clearly bare-maced um, and asking for help. And uh, he had gone inside a convenience store, gone a jug of milk, came outside, poured on himself. That's what you do when you get bare-maced. And... Uh, VPD constables arrived in cruisers and immediately came out with rifles drawn and shot him six times in the back with a beanbag gun. Uh, he fell to the floor. He went into cardiac arrest, and then he died on sight. That's what happened mm-hmm. yesterday. Okay. Like, when you say he was bear-maced, do you mean, like, somebody, somebody, we don't know who, shot him with, like, bear spray? Yeah, yeah. It's a common yeah. occurrence, unfortunately, in the downtown east side. Yeah. And yeah. as you've heard from witnesses, people are upset because this is a completely avoidable death. And sad to say, we call it murder. This is the uh, second time in two years, actually. The police have slain a naked man in clear mental distress. Uh, there was also the case of Chester Lebowon, who was murdered by police with five bullets to the chest um, on January 6th. 2021 and this is a it's very sad that this has happened within the the same block actually um and we want accountability um this is a complete overreach and use of excessive force on someone that was clearly Uh, requesting help the use of a the use of a beanbag gun obviously meant to be a non-lethal alternative to control someone who's a i guess a threat to themselves or someone else i mean are you saying like this guy was not he was not threatening anybody. No, he, he was absolutely, he was mm. in the nude pouring milk on himself, right? Um, Kevin Yake, the vice president of Vandu, he summed it up. He was killed over spilled milk. This man was clearly in distress, and he got six shots in the back, and he was dead. I don't know what okay. to call that except murder. Okay, well, there's an investigation going on into that right now. Let me ask you, Vince, for 
your reaction to some of the comments from the, the deputy chief on the show here yesterday. So mm-hmm. let me pl- let me play one clip here for you. We'll play a few clips here from Howard Chow uh, and his what he had to say yesterday on the show. Get your get your reaction. Here is the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department on yesterday's show uh, talking about police officers being assaulted in the neighborhood. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. You know, we've had nine officers that have been assaulted in the last six weeks there. One was just a, an officer in a passenger seat of a car stopped at a light with his window down. And for no reason at all, somebody came and struck him in the head with a pipe. You've had swarmings. We've had officers have coffee thrown on them. We've had officers that have been bitten, spat on, punched when they're responding to calls for service in that area. What do you think about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, this is the thing. Uh these like, past couple of weeks, the police have been escalating their harassment surveillance of the neighborhood. Since the decampment began on August 9th, uh, police action to terrorize the neighborhood has escalated day by day with targeted raids and arrests. Uh, and, you know, the presence of beat cops in growing numbers just walking up down the streets with their guns in, the, in their holsters, threatening people, telling them, hey, you got to move, this is your last chance, so on and so forth. The police are creating an like, atmosphere of tension and chaos in the neighborhood, and that's what they thrive off of, right? And so, I don't know. We can, get, we can argue for until the, the cows come home about like, what constitutes an assault against an officer when an officer is a person that can actually, is legally allowed to kill you at any moment. Um, well, well, do you, th- do you think of, oh. <laughs> one, one, of the th- one of the other things that Howard Chow said to me yesterday is that they are getting a lot of calls for service down in that encampment. Like, you know, police, people are calling them for help on the downtown east side on Hastings Street. Often the, he said there are people who are living in the encampment are calling the cops. So let me play another clip here for you for your thoughts about the, the number of assaults that are going on down there and the number of police calls for service in the encampment on Hastings Street. Then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Howard Chow yesterday. We're dealing with over 80 plus assaults that have taken place in the last six weeks in that three and a half, four block area. So can you imagine 80 plus assaults, let alone number of sex assaults, let alone of a dozen plus stabbings in that short time, um, and also assaults against our officers. This has been crushing on all our, our staff. Okay, this also includes the Vancouver police yesterday said that they had uh, seized two guns from a, a tent in the encampment on the downtown east side yesterday. Are you saying that like there are police who are living down or people who are living down in the neighborhood are also calling the police for help, though? Right. Yeah. And so when we talk to people in the, on the street about like their interactions with police, and again, there are instances where folks do call the cops because there is oh, yeah. something going down that like requires, you know, someone that can like help enforce like peace but what we hear time and time again as well from straight from the residents mouth is that the cops aren't there to protect them right they they are called in and if if the situation is not one that benefits the police to kind of intervene into uh they'll walk away they'll they'll be like okay good luck right again a lot when you talk to like howard chow like in the top cop over here he's going to make up these stories make it they're, they're just like the friendly neighborhood, like, you know, uh, the Bobby on the beat. But really, if you ask any resident down there and yesterday's, uh, you know, police killing of an innocent man, an unarmed man yesterday, uh, we'll tell you, like, you ask anyone on the street, the cops in the neighborhood are the bullies, right? Well, hang, so, on, but again, hang, on, hang on a second, though. When he talks about over 80 assaults in a three-week period in that encampment, when he talks about sexual assaults 
in the neighborhood, in the encampment, when you're finding like loaded shotguns in a tent on the encampment of the downtown east side. How is that not a situation where the police have to be called like frequently, almost on a daily basis? Again, I don't, I don't know. So this is the thing. I cannot account for as much as you think that like I am a guy who like runs this tent city as much as the city would like to think that activists and leftists are, are creating a situation on the ground. That's, it's not up to us to essentially account for every single thing that happens in tent city. And of course, conditions out there are rough. Right. And they're created that way because people don't have housing. They are not given the opportunities to find meaningful work in such a way that, you know, so on and so forth, that they can like, yeah, get themselves. People are stuck there for a reason because there's no housing anywhere. Right. There's no opportunities for them to get yeah. out of that neighborhood. And of course, yeah, stuff is rough. Right. I'm, and that's, you know, Howard Chow also said that people are trying to paint a pretty picture of what's going on down there. Trust me, no one wants to be down there, including the residents. They want to be housed. Right. And so people are scared, of course, but there's double there's like, you know, tension coming from all sides. Right. There's lateral violence happening in the tent city all the time, but also an extreme police presence that creates terror and fear in the neighborhood. That is not helping. Yeah, I I guess, though, I guess the point the deputy chief was making yesterday, it's it's very often it's the police who are li- the people who are living in the neighborhood who are calling the police for help let me play another clip here for you vince to get your thoughts so th- this is one where uh deputy police chief howard chow yesterday said that activists anti-police activists in the neighborhood are making it tough for them to do their job let's have a listen to what he said then i'll get your thoughts some activists in the area that are in our officers faces shoot uh, shoving cameras in their faces um you know very borderline uh harassing, obstructionist, you know, when we're called there to deal with the call. And I think what people are forgetting is that there's residents, business people, there's other, and there's those in the encampment that want police there uh, or need police because of really violent issues that are taking place in that, in those three or four blocks. And every time we're going there to help, we're, our, our officers are met with us. Tao, your, your response to the... Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so I would like to say first, I think Mike... Anti-police activist, I think that is your term, not Howard Chow's, but I'm sure that it was his sentiments. Uh, I think phrased another way, we could say, rather than anti-police activist, we could say pro-human rights activist. Because, God, all we got down there are volunteer law students who are just keeping an eye on police conduct in the neighborhood. Because that has been also a request straight from the residents as well, because they see every day, and you're not going to get this from like a clean interview from a guy in a, in a nice suit. But the residents report every single day that constant police harassment and surveillance is one of their top concerns, right? And so that's exactly why we have some legal observers there, simply just documenting what's going on. And I think it's rather rich, the guy like Howard Chow and, you know, the VPD, the guys with the guns, are afraid of a bunch of law students with clipboards, right? But last last that, question. To, to characterize that as some kind of harassment, I think, is laughable. Last question for you, Vince. The the deputy chief yesterday also made the case for an increase in the police budget to hire more police officers. You, you believe yeah. it should go in the other direction, correct? I mean, yeah, and that's where I think you, people should have some a little bit of literacy here because you're listening to the guy, Howard Chow. He makes tons of money. The entire staff at Vandu makes less than, combined, makes less than Howard Chow in one year. He makes $275,000 a year, right? And he's just one guy there. The cops make a lot of money. And what's the, you know, how do they get that money is with increased ideas of public safety issues of, oh, there's crime in the streets. We're heading into election. Of course, 
you know, it's, I think he gives away the ghost a bit by ending the interview with like, hey, maybe you guys should give us a little bit more money because of all the scary things I'm talking about. Um, we really need more money going back into downtown Eastside, increasing services and providing ultimately housing. Okay. That's what will okay. keep people safe. Not more guns. Thank you, Vince, for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's talk about record high inflation now. 7.6%. The inflation rate last month is reported by Statistics Canada. Are you feeling the pinch? I don't know too many people who are not. Lots of people cutting back, canceling or delaying spending plans, shopping around for cheaper prices if, if you can find them. Check out this brand new survey now from Angus Reid. A large majority of Canadians scaling back, spending, cutting, their household budgets. Do you think some big companies are taking advantage of the situation? Maybe jacking up prices because they can get away with it? A lot of people think so in this economy right now. Let's discuss it with my guest, Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reed Institute. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Shachi. Hey, Mike. Okay, another great uh, poll and survey here. It's a really interesting snapshot of Canadian attitudes in this economy with rising inflation. Let's talk about how people are coping right now. What did you find out about how people are managing these, uh, these inf- uh, the inflation right now? Oh, this is absolutely a time where we're seeing people coast to coast across the country, including in British Columbia, trimming back, cutting back on spending. So if the story, Mike, of 2020 and 2021 was COVID-19, the story of 2022 has been inflation. And, you know, the, the economists and the experts talk about transitory inflation or necessary inflation uh, sorry, uh, necessary increases uh, in in uh, in interest rates to curb inflation. Uh, what I am seeing based on these data is is that it's reaching the household level and households, people who are making decisions when it comes to the family wallet, uh, are making decisions not to spend. They're cutting back on planned travel. They're delaying major purchases. They are trimming back discretionary spending. Everything from eating out or doing some of the other fun things that you might be doing with family members. A couple of really big doozies that stood out to me, nearly 30% of Canadians say that they plan to defer or scale back on charitable donations. Uh, And then there's one in five, Mike, who say that they are deferring or simply not making an RSP or a TFSA contribution. So this isn't just affecting the way we're spending money today on, on stuff whether it's discretionary or nice to have or must have, it's also having an impact on the way people are able to uh, plan for their own financial security down the road. Right. And speaking of that financial security, like what happens if people get hit with some sort of an unexpected expense? I know you asked uh, respondents about that in the survey too, right? What did you find out? Yeah, there's a significant number who say that they could not handle any expense any unexpected expense, regardless of the amount, there is also uh, nearly half of Canadians who say that they could not today absorb an unexpected expense of more than $1,000. So that again says to me, and when you look at that, that, uh, how that shakes out by income, I mean, not surprising, but it's pretty stark. The number of people on the lower income end of the scale 
only 20% of lower income earners say that they could handle anything over a thousand bucks. And when we ask the question in a different way, okay, what if someone dropped $5,000 into your lap? What if you won it in a lottery or, or got an unexpected gift or a bequestment? Um, what we find is that, uh, Whereas in the past, my people might have splurged, uh, they might have blown that money on, on something nice, on a trip, on a big ticket purchase, uh, they're almost entirely more likely today to say they'd use it to spend down debt or in some right. cases to pay down debt or in, in some cases to actually spend on on day-to-day necessary items. So uh, the days of, of extra, it does feel for so many households in this country are really gone. Yeah, if, if someone suddenly got 5000 bucks out there, I think a lot of people would be making the decision, man, I've got to pay off my credit card or I've got to do something else with the debt that I'm yeah. piling up because people are borrowing more to, to get through this. Speaking to Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reed Institute, we're talking about the soaring cost of living in Canada. When you drill down on these numbers, Shachi, across the country, what did you find out? Is it particularly acute in, in British Columbia? Is this consistent all across Canada? I mean, it is being felt across the country, no doubt about it. I think where, where we're seeing um, higher levels of stress in British Columbia is really when it comes to how British Columbians are assessing their own debt load. They are among the most likely to say that they're stressed about debt and they're carrying too much debt. And it's important to put that in context around, well, <laughs> what kind of debt do British Columbians carry? It is most likely to be mortgage debt, isn't it, because of the high cost of housing in this province. And that's something that's been going on for years and years and years, and it's it's something of an outlier even today, even though the rest of the country is catching up uh, when it comes to, to high housing costs, high mortgage costs, the, the, the absolutely prohibitive cost of getting into the market. Now, housing prices have been coming down and cooling uh, in this province, but, you know, cooling doesn't mean that it's not still hot. And when you look at the other end, uh, the other side of that coin, Mike, look at what's happening with rental costs. They're, they're skyrocketing. They're going through the roof. So, you know, what we're seeing, particularly for young people, for younger adults, is this is the first time in their lives that they're experiencing a, a period where the days of being able to buy what you want, when you want to be able to borrow at a cost that is uh, reasonably uh, in line with what you're looking for or hoping for are gone. Um, and this is, this is for probably for many, many young adults, the first time in their lives where they're having to think about trade-offs, having to actually watch the bottom line, having to say, I'm actually putting off buying this item or, or, or uh, doing this home reno because it's just not something I think I can afford right now, which is which is a new thing for a lot of us. Yeah, here's another thing that I find interesting, and this was a, it really reflected in your survey, is when you listen to some of the politicians like Justin Trudeau try to explain what's going on with this economy, we'll say, well, you know, don't look at me. It's not the government's fault. This is because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or it's about supply chain issues, or it's a hangover from uh, from the pandemic. That's what's driving a lot of this inflation. But I talk to a lot of people, I know you do too, who say, you know what, I think that some big companies are gaming the system here. I think they're deliberately jacking up prices 
because they can get away with it. Like everything is going up so fast, so quickly and spice so much, we might as well jack the prices up anyway, even if we don't have to. Let me play a clip here for you by uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on this topic, and then we'll talk about your survey results here. Have a listen to this, Jagmeet Singh. But we also know when the cost of living goes up, it impacts workers, it impacts families, but it also benefits those at the very top. We see that those at the top make more profit. In fact, we know right now that corporate profits, according to economists, are one of the major drivers of inflation. Do you think that Canadians feel that, you know, there's some sneaky stuff going on here, by, especially the grocery store chains, if they're deliberately jacking up prices? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the perception. Now, I can't yeah. speak to whether it's the reality because a lot of these, um, these, these grocery chains and other large companies have come back in the last a couple of weeks and said, hey, it's not because we're jacking up prices. It's actually because we've cut costs or figured out how to manage our companies more efficiently. And that's why we're seeing great quarterly results. Whether that's that's the, the case of it or not, definitely there is a perception among an overwhelming number of Canadians that that uh, this is this is something that they believe to be true that there is uh, a level of taking advantage of inflation in order to increase the bottom line among retailers. So retailers are dealing with that. They're going to have to deal with that perception problem um, and and find a way to reassure uh, people. Um, uh, that uh, that there is a uh, that 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 there isn't something nefarious yeah. going on. Chachi, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Earlier today, we talked about the soaring cost of living in Canada, the inflation rates at record highs, and the pinch that people are feeling out there. I don't know how many, too many people who are not feeling stressed out by the inflation that we're seeing at the moment. Lots of people are having a tough time making ends meet. What is the answer to the challenges we have in this economy? Well, how about a universal basic income? A universal basic income. How would this work? Well, it would be a minimum income that everyone would be guaranteed to receive in the country. It's an issue that's being advanced by many different groups. Let's discuss it now. We've got both sides of it for you. Sheila Regeer on the line. Sheila is the chairperson of Basic Income Canada Network. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sheila. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. Also on the line is Philip Cross, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Philip is the former chief economic analyst at Statistics Canada. Hi, Philip. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on again. Sheila, let me go to you first. First of all, let's define our terms here. What is a basic income? What is that? How does it work? That's a perfect question to start because there is some confusion. Lots of people get their information from the United States or Europe. In Canada, we very clearly understand how a basic income can fit into our system. The best example are policies that are very much like the kind of basic income we're looking for that we already have for seniors and for families with children. So we're not looking at some radical new thing. We're looking at extending that kind of income security to other ordinary people. Right, and how much would it be? Like, what would be the minimum basic income? I guess that would be up for debate and discussion. Well, the modeling we've done, interestingly enough, that we did right before the pandemic hit, 
we determined that a reasonable level of adequacy was about $2,000 a month, and that's about the same as the people who designed CERB came up with. Now, CERB is not a basic income. There are some design flaws in there. But that acknowledgement that that kind of level of adequacy is really important. I think the other thing to understand, though, is how things work in Canada. And again, if we look at seniors and kids' benefits we already have, unlike CERB, not everybody gets $2,000. If you don't need that much, if your need is more in the range of two or $300, it is based on your income. But it assures okay. that everybody gets to meet their basic needs. Okay, Philip Cross, what do you think about this idea? Basic income, $2,000 a month, guaranteed. What do you think of that idea? I think in some circumstances I could support it, but not in the current circumstance. If we had mass unemployment, 15 20% unemployment, robots were taking all the jobs from humans, in that type of situation, sure, I'd be willing to consider a universal basic income. But the problem we have today is the exact opposite. Unemployment's at a record low. The number one problem in the Canadian labor market is not unemployment. It's the shortage of workers. It's that yeah. employers cannot fill one million vacancies. To introduce into this labor market a program that would discourage people further from working seems to me just absolutely the worst time. Sheila, what do you say to that? What I say to that is the worst thing you can do when you have a labor shortage is allow people to go hungry and get sick and be unable to participate in our economy in the way that they have the capacity to do with the proper supports. Again, the, the way a basic income is designed is so the money is there when you need it, but it rewards employment. So if you can manage to get healthier, you have some options for your employment, everybody is better off. It, it makes no sense to, to have a system where people can fall into poverty so easily to find it so extraordinarily difficult to climb out when we need people involved in our society and our economy. Hey, Philip, do you think that if we went with a universal basic income system that some people would take advantage of it, like some people who were able to work would just say, well, you know what, if I'm going to get 2000 bucks a month for not working, I think I'll just stay home. Like, yeah. do you think somebody would take advantage of it? Well, as, um, as was mentioned, you know, we sort of went through a, a mini basic income experiment with the CERB program yeah. during the pandemic. Before we implement that full-time, let's study what happened during the pandemic. I mean, something obviously enormous happened to the labor market. We're coming out of the pandemic. We have a tremendous shortage of workers. We don't fully understand how it was that people, how much fraud was involved in people applying for CERB. We don't understand the longer-term impacts. Is the reduction in, in the labor force, the shortage of workers, is it related to uh, something in CERB. I mean, we don't fully understand what happened. I don't understand why the rush. Why don't we uh, take some time, study exactly how it is that people reacted to and behaved with CERB before we start to implement yeah. it full-time? Yeah, Sheila, what would prevent someone from just taking advantage of it? Maybe you're physically able to work, but if you're going to get $2,000 a month, why wouldn't some people just say, well, to heck with it, I'm not going to work if I'm going to get $2,000 a month for nothing? It's, I think, 
unfortunately rather too popular misconception that all of the pilot programs and all of the current programs that we have that are closer to a basic income actually show the opposite. There isn't a work disincentive in there, certainly not a work disincentive that comes anywhere close to equaling social assistance, which, you know, claws back just about everything when you, when you try to get ahead. I think this is something that supports people getting ahead. Now, there are people, we're, we're in a tough situation now. Like you, you hear stories about mental health crises all the time, about yeah. the opioid crisis. People are anxious. I mean, this is a crazy world. We're facing climate crisis and extreme weather. So in those situations, like you can see that people think, oh, let me just get away from it all. It, it doesn't happen. People with that hope and with that support and options actually do more, and they do better in life. Philip, what do you think of that? Well, I think, you know, the number one problems we have in our economy right now, as you mentioned in the lead-in to this whole segment, was inflation. That's what people yeah. have, has people stressed out. There was a poll yesterday that 80% of Canadians are having trouble, are feeling stress from higher prices. A lot of that, a lot of these inflationary pressures came from excessive government spending and stimulus during the pandemic. It is incredible to me that we would think that further government spending and stimulus somehow would help us in the current situation. Yeah. Sheila, what do you think about, uh, has a universal basic income been implement, actually implemented anywhere successfully? Well, it depends on, I think the purest version hasn't anywhere, but like I said, there are examples around the world of, you know, policies that are close to basic income. And I think Canadian policies for seniors and for families with children are very close to that. But if I can go back to to this, the, the Angus Reid poll that came out, which, you know, as, as Philip said, clearly shows we've got some problems. If yeah. Half of Canadians, over half, are saying they could not manage a sudden expense of more than $1,000. That shows we have a real income security problem. We have a real human problem. It's hard to imagine that you can have a really healthy, functional society and economy when people are are in that much difficulty. Um, But I want to say, too, that I do agree with with Philip that we we need to look more closely at CERB and what happened. From our perspective, there there are a lot of design flaws in CERB, but there were some important lessons that we learned, and I think we need to look at that. Um, StatsCan data for 2020 shows reductions, quite significant reductions in poverty, reductions in racial inequality. So something happened that was right. And as far as the huge expense of, of all of this, I mean, it was a pandemic. It was an extraordinary circumstance. But I agree with Philip. We do need to more fully understand this and parse out what worked, what didn't, what we can learn to really design a much better income security program for all Canadians. All right, we continue our debate on a universal basic income. Philip Cross, McDonald Laurier Institute, Sheila Regere, Basic Income Canada Network. Lots of calls on this one. Fred on Vancouver Island. Hi, Fred, go ahead. Hi, uh, I agree with a lot of the comments, but the, the observation I have is the disaster 
that three or four or five generations of people fell into one week into COVID. And, and that was unfortunately due to a never-ending good economy, and they forgot what used to be taught in high school and universities, that you got to save part of your paycheck, you got to take care of yourself. So I'd rather have somebody like your panelists talk about what do we first of all got to do to avoid this repeat of 80% of the people saying, I can't handle any surprise. Uh, and, and, and then, yes, we have to try to take care of people, but we got 80% of the population that's saying, it's your fault. Everyone else has to help me. And, and that's not sustainable. That so, is so, not so, a go-forward policy. So you're saying people need to learn more, what, self-reliance? Yes, but in yeah. order to do that, it's going to take generations to get back to where it used to be, in my humble opinion. Okay. Sheila Regeer, your thoughts on that? It's a really interesting question, and I, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think a whole lot of different things are going on in our society, and over generations, obviously, things have changed. I don't know about going back, but I... I think, again, the, the lessons from the pandemic are really important. We A lot of us scaled back on things. This is happening with inflation. The issue is, though, a lot of people can afford to do that. They can afford to save more. They can afford to plan better. They can cut back in lots of ways that help the environment by reducing uh, their driving and, and that sort of thing. But there are people and circumstances that are becoming more and more precarious for more and more people, and it, we just don't have the income okay. security to, to allow them to manage. Okay, I'll squeeze another and call in have... here. Just, just squeeze another call in here in the interest of time here. Dan in yeah, Vancouver. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Dan in Vancouver. Dan, go ahead. Hey, I mean, I'm just a little bit worried about, uh, you know, people double dipping here. Like, there's a lot of a lot of double dipping going on during CERB. I mean, they're trying to reca- recapture about 30% of the CERB payments. So, you know, if there's a way that they can distribute this, like, and instead of just straight income for some people, perhaps a housing supplement that goes towards your rent. Because, you know, I'm just reading stats right now on on the government's website about, you know, $6.8 billion was in the shadow economy and. 2014. So it's a good idea in in many ways, but you really have to reduce the, you know, people taking advantage of this because there was a lot during CERB. And I know of a lot of people that, you know, firsthand accounts of people that took advantage of it. They were working, not getting paid, not not paying taxes, you know, getting paid underground and collecting the CERB. Okay, Philip Cross, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, Sheila makes the point that, you know, she wants to help people and who are in, in difficult circumstances and so on, and that's one way of looking at it. But another way is that, you know, there are there is a, a certain percentage of people out there who will take advantage of programs like this, who are not honest and, and uh, self-dealing. It goes back to your previous caller. I mean, it's, you know, uh, you know we're talking about really long-term trends and, in the morality of our society, but, you know, these programs do encourage people to be dependent on government. You know, do, is that really the the character we want in our population? Yeah. Okay, Jeremy in Abbotsford. Hi, Jeremy, go ahead. Hey, Mike, yeah. Well, I'm a hard no, Alexa. I'm on that show. I'm a hard no. And, and Sheila's bleeding heart, it is a band-aid. I'm sorry, but I'm at a landscape company. I hire, I do that indeed, and Craigslist job ads all the time. And you can almost measure the economy and how hard people work how many resumes come in and when serve and all that was going on it was so low 
and it's still really low, like maybe four to six every couple of days, if that. Most people don't come in for an interview. It's, and I've been doing this for over 20 years. It's a society right now where people do not want to work. I've had 19 and 20-year-old guys tell me when CERB happened, they'd rather stay home to be safe with their families when this COVID was starting out. And uh, it's mm. just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, I'm actually thinking okay. of really downsizing and laying off a few people because you can't run a big, uh, it's not a big company, but you can't run a company when you can't get good staff regularly. They just okay. don't want to work. Thanks for the call. Sheila, he says people don't want to work. Your thoughts? It's complicated. What my direct response, though, to both this and to Dan's question about double dipping is there were design problems with CERB. CERB is not a basic income. And I agree with both of them that we need to design this better um, to avoid the double, dish, the double dipping issues. But I still think we need better income security to support mm. workers so they can manage a crisis like the pandemic. They can manage a crisis like ill health. I mean, you have to recognize that people died and people became very ill. People have long COVID. There were real issues that people need support for, and it will okay. help them get back into the economy. Philip, we got 30 seconds left. I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. Uh, well, I think you know, while we're busy studying the effects of CERB, and I'm glad Sheila admits we don't uh, understand the effects and on people's behavior. The one thing we do know is it helps fuel inflation. And we haven't talked enough about this macro impact that large government spending programs are the primary cause of inflation. And introducing okay. that into the current environment would be disastrous. All right. Let's talk about back to school now. September is getting closer. So is the new school year. Will there be any COVID-19 rules and restrictions in schools this year? How about the teacher's contract? Like many other public sector unions, teachers are in contract negotiations right now with the government. Let's discuss now with my guest, Clint Johnston. Clint is the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Clint, thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Thank you. Hey, hey Clint, thanks for taking the time. First of all, let's talk about back to school coming up very sooner than we all think here. Will Do you anticipate there'll be any new any COVID restrictions in schools or have they all been dropped now? Uh, well, we've, there's been a table working over the summer, the same table uh, that was together of, of people in the education sector looking at the recommendations from health and making those into recommendations for schools. And we actually expect this week, uh, sometime this week, they're going to come out with the COVID standards in school. What we've actually been led to believe is, is that they'll be very similar to what was in place at the end of the last school year. Of course, there's, you know, we, we would like to see more. We, we support masking, and we think those should be provided and available for any student or staff who want them. We think the work on ventilation that was going on to keep those spaces safe, we know it's airborne, that, uh, you know, should carry on. And in the meantime, that uh, HEPA filters should be accessible anywhere they're needed. So we expect them to look similar, and there's still areas we're pushing for to enhance the safety of everyone. Okay, so you believe that masks should be available for people who want to wear one, but that you don't want a mask mandate in schools, I assume, though? No, no, right now that's not the Federation's policy to call for a mask okay. mandate. Um, what we're looking for is that environment we saw where they're provided for people if they need them. 
and it's uh, acceptable whatever choice you make, and everyone is comfortable with their choice. Yeah. Are you hearing from any parents or teachers who want a mask mandate? I mean, there is a group in BC, I'm sure you're aware of, called the Safe Schools Coalition, that they want that mask mandate back in place. Yeah, um, we're hearing, you know, if you mean hearing uh, on social media, I'm certainly aware that there are some individuals, um, some of who I believe are teachers and some who are um, public members calling for that mask mandate. Um, And that's, you know, I respect their position and their perspective, but um, we tend to follow health advice. That's their area of expertise. And um, so we form our opinions and whatever protects our members. Right. Speaking of Clint Johnston, president of the BC Teachers Federation, let's talk about the contract negotiations. I had Stephanie Smith on the show yesterday, Clint, the president of the BC General Employees Union. Of course, they're in strike uh, strike position right now. And we talked about the wage increases that they're seeking for their members. Let me play a short clip of what she had to say here and get your thoughts on the teacher contract talks. But here is Union President Stephanie Smith on yesterday's show. We need to see wage increases that allow our members to catch up. You know, we did internal polling. They're saying almost 50% of them are falling further and further into debt every month just to meet their basic needs. And just as importantly, we want to see some meaningful protection for those wage increases against rates of inflation. Okay, Stephanie Smith, president of the BC General Employees Union, uh, on strike uh, right now, especially affecting uh, liquor store operations in BC. What is the status, Clint, of the, uh, the teacher's contract? Well, the teacher's contract right now, it expired on June 30th. Um, It's on the school year uh, calendar, so it expired on June 30th. But we did have three days at the table again last week. Um, We've got some days scheduled in September, though um, we would like to see some much earlier days uh, scheduled. We've uh, pushed the employer to try to get those earlier dates. We want to resolve this. Um, But we're in a similar boat, honestly. As always, Stephanie says it very well. Uh, We've seen these rates of inflation everyone has, and they're unprecedented for decades. And our members need a protection that means whatever increase they get isn't swallowed up and surpassed, and they experience an effective pay cut. You know, um, the realities are day-to-day is affected now. These aren't extravagant luxuries that people are having affected. So we want our members to make sure that they get a a raise so that they're not second last lowest in pay in Canada, um, and that they're protected from COLA, much like the GE workers. Okay, that's very interesting because right now we're looking at record high inflation rates, 7.6% inflation in the country last year. So are you looking for a wage increase for teachers that matches the inflation rate? Well, what we're looking for is, yeah, language that will ensure that whatever that inflation rate is, that it doesn't cut into and mean an effective pay cut for our members. And I think right now we are seeing very high numbers. Um, I also know that when you listen to predictions, those are expected to level out and come down to um, closer to normal levels. Um, so we're not looking for specific huge numbers. We just want to make sure that our members don't experience further effective pay cuts uh, due to inflation. Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned that you've already been at the bargaining table here recently. How far apart are you with government right now? Well, we've had some really good discussions on on a lot of issues. Um, You know, there's been some positive movement forward. But uh, being honest, we are kind of at a a gap on the pay. You know, they're provided money by the government to fund a deal. And and that money doesn't seem like it's really sufficient to get a deal that's going to protect our members and their wage increase, but also uh, workload. You know, it's no secret that the workload of teachers is going up and up. We have a recruitment and a retention problem. We have shortages. 
So we need to get some money into the contract and address teachers' workloads. So someone looking at it knows, okay, I could do this as a career for 30 years. Uh, you know, they're not looking at burning out in the first few years. So we need money for that. We need money for wages. And uh, if that's put there on the table for the employer to use, we're positive that we can get a deal done. Okay. It sounds like that, that means there would not be a teacher strike, or is that something you can rule out right now? Well, right now there are no plans to have a teacher strike. We, you know, in the last few days, we've had our provincial executive met. We've also had a representative assembly, which is the governance body that provides input on bargaining. And we've talked some strategy going forward, and our members will be getting communication about that over the next little while. But right now I can say there's no plans uh, to have a teacher strike in the near future. Okay, no plans for a, a, a strike vote? No plans for a strike vote right now, and our members will get information about what the plan is coming to them soon. Speaking of Clint Johnston, president of the BC Teachers Union, how confident, like, what can you say to parents right now who are seeing a lot of unrest in public sector labor right now? We've got the BC General Employees Union uh, striking in a strike position, overtime ban. For parents who are worried that maybe there could be similar job action and, and the school system what kind of assurances can you give them i I appreciate you say there are no plans but i you're not ruling it out though correct well no i we would never rule that out i mean bargaining is what bargaining is and if if it gets to a point where that seems like the only viable way forward in getting the money and the, the language necessary to recommend a deal to members then that's always a possibility but what i would say to them right now is it's it's not the next step for us right now um, and if they're concerned about it, I would urge them to um, reach out as we always do and, and speak out about that and make sure that a government that managed to um, secure coal increases for themselves is able to do that yeah. for not just union workers, by the way, everyone. And make sure that we don't fall fall behind again and uh, and let that be known. And then hopefully that motivates them to get a deal done and we all go back to work and back to school. Yeah. And when you say, you know, the government had a COLA increase for themselves, you're referring to members of the Legislative Assembly, right, like MLAs, you got a pay increase that's effectively indexed to in the inflation rate, right? Yeah, yeah, that is what yeah. I'm referencing. And I, to yeah. be clear, I don't begrudge that. I just think yeah. if, that's, uh, if that's an effective way to deal with coal, it should be available to all workers so we move forward together and not uh, some of us move forward and some of us maybe move backwards. Okay, you mentioned you had a few days of bargaining there last week, or then there, there are new talks scheduled, you said too, right? There are new talks yeah. scheduled towards the end of September, and we're, we're continuing to push the employer to get some earlier in September because we, we really do. We want to get to the table and sort this out. We're aware of the uncertainty. I still have three kids in the education system. So we're aware of that uncertainty, and we'd like to get that resolved and move forward. And thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot, Mike, for having me. Okay.